This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Ataxia is a rare genetic degenerative disorder that affects multiple systems in the body. As the disease progresses, patients typically experience various heart conditions, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, fibrosis, heart failure, and arrhythmias are the cause of death in approximately two-thirds of Friedrich's ataxia patients. Lexiotherapeutics is developing a gene therapy to treat FA cardiomyopathy. We spoke to R. Nolan Townsend, CEO of Lexio, about Friedrich's ataxia, the company's gene therapy and development, and its pursuit of gene therapies for both rare and common diseases. Nolan, thanks for joining us. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about Friedrich's ataxia, cardiomyopathy, Lexio, and its efforts to develop gene therapies for both rare and common diseases. Let's start with Friedrich's ataxia. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it? Friedrich's ataxia is a a rare disease um, that first develops in childhood. uh, And the first symptoms of this disease are, in a lot of cases, uh, gait abnormality and other neurologic symptoms. This typically uh, develops when children are in the five to eight years old uh, time frame um, and typically progresses uh, through childhood into adolescence and into adulthood. The the central nervous system component of the disease does progress um, until the point where a cardiomyopathy or or cardiac phenotype associated with the disease emerges in adulthood. I mean, it's actually this cardiac component of the disease that's the cause of death for 70% of Friedrich's ataxia patients. So this is very much a life-threatening disease. Um, it has one recently approved therapy. But what's unique about it, I think, relative to some other rare diseases out there, is it has both a kind of neurologic component of the disease that develops in childhood and this cardiac disease that develops in adulthood. And this develops within the same patient. And so that's one of the challenges you know, when thinking about therapeutic options for this patient population is that you know, really you have two components of this disease to treat. I would say, you know, I've met a lot of Friedrich's ataxia patients. It's a very, you know, challenging disease to live with. But unlike some other uh, neurologic uh, rare diseases, these patients remain totally, totally cognitively intact. They have jobs, they go to school, they have children, you know, they have, they have very fulfilling lives. And I think, you know, the efforts to find a treatment for this disease are really focused on ensuring they can live a great quality of life, but also just live longer lives as well. How does the the disease typically manifests itself and progress? 
Uh, well, it starts typically with, with gait abnormalities. So par parents will start to see, you know, signs of their, their children's not, not progressing as well and in walking and running. Um, and there's other, uh, there's other, com other components of the, of the disease related to impairment in speech and, and also the ability to use their, their hands and legs and so on and, and other activities. And so you see a very clear neurologic, you know, phenotype you know, early on. Um, and I think this, this continues throughout the patient's lives, but I think in adulthood, for a lot of patients, uh, I would say the neurologic disease progresses, but it stabilizes to some extent relative to what you see in the pediatric component. And it's this cardiac disease that becomes, uh, you know, a very serious component of, of uh, Friedrich's ataxia in adulthood for patients. You mentioned there was a, a recently approved drug for the condition. What's the prognosis for someone with this condition today? So on the neurologic side, uh, this uh, recently approved therapy from Riata, now uh, Riata was acquired by Biogen. The, the therapy is called Skyclaris. Um, this is a therapy that uh, reduces, uh, at least has been demonstrated to reduce the rate of decline of the neurologic disease, which I think is a great step forward for patients in this disease area. They've had no, no real therapy, uh, FDA approved treatment option uh, for them. So I think that's a, it's a major step the FDA demonstrated very substantial, you know, regulatory flexibility when it approved this treatment. So I do think now there are patients that, that have a therapy, and I know a lot of patients are interested in it, and we're seeing this, um, this treatment effect in, in some patients that are being treated with, with this therapy. However, there remains um, a lack of therapeutic options for the cardiovascular component of the disease. And I think that, you know, so from a prognosis standpoint, in terms of mortality, I don't think the existing therapy will have a material impact on mortality and because that is the mediated by the cardiac component of the disease. Um, so the neurologic uh, component can be, let's say, addressed to some extent with, with the existing therapeutic option, but the cardiac component that remains, I think, a lot of unmet need in that, in that side of things. In terms of Friedrich's ataxia cardiomyopathy, what actually happens to the heart over time? So in, classically in Friedrich's ataxia, and in, you know, frankly, this is the case in many other uh, cardiomyop genetic cardiomyopathies, uh, you see a um, hypertrophy associated with the disease, so a thickening of the heart walls. And this is what you know, mediates, let's say, the, the symptoms of heart failure that you would uh, typically see with Friedrich's ataxia. A lot of experts will call it a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy phenocopy. So it looks like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a you know, classic cardiovascular disease and you know, can progress towards heart failure. You also see other symptoms, uh, arrhythmias. Um, we see other symptoms uh, related to um, just you know, shortness of breath and dyspnea. So there, there's a number of symptoms related to it, but I say the primary one that's most evident is this hypertrophy of the heart, so a thickening of the heart walls. Lexio is developing LX2006, a, a gene therapy to treat the condition. What is it and, and how does it work? So um, yeah, Friedrich's ataxia um, is a disease that's what you would think of as a, a loss of function disease, meaning the um, frataxin protein is insufficiently expressed in the heart and the brain. This insufficient amount of protein leads to mitochondrial dysfunction. This mitochondrial dysfunction ultimately you know, is the cause of the, of the disease leads to hypertrophy and leads to the symptoms of cardiomyopathy that, you know, we, we see as a component of it. And what we're doing is using a 
cardiac tropic or a highly cardiac uh, a vector that has high cardiac affinity to deliver the frataxin gene to the heart. This gene expresses the functional protein. It restores frataxin in the heart and therefore in the mitochondria. That restoration of frataxin results in normalizing of mitochondrial energetics and normalizing of, of cardiac function in several different murine um, um, uh, models or mice studies in which we uh, evaluated this. We've also moved this program into clinical studies. We have some preliminary data from our lowest dose cohort that looks you know, promising and we're moving the program through its higher doses and hopefully towards um, later stage studies uh, next year. Is the expectation that this is a gene therapy that would get be given to any person with Friedrich's ataxia or would there be a need for there to be a certain level of disease progression evidenced in the heart? So our, our current clinical trial, um, the inclusion criteria is for patients that have some symptoms of the, of the cardiovascular disease, and they could even be the early or you know, mild symptoms. Um, our current clinical trial has excluded the you know, most advanced uh, patients uh, that may exhibit uh, you know, symptoms of cardiomyopathy. So we're really in this kind of middle swath of patients, mild, moderate, um, that represent the majority of the patients with the uh, cardiovascular component of, of uh, Friedrich's ataxia. So that's our current clinical trial design. I, I think it's you know too early to comment on what an ultimate label for a therapy would be, um, but I would you know I'd envision that at least we would be study, studying a similar population in future studies, and hopefully we can find a way that this therapy will uh, be an option for patients in the most um, advanced stages of the disease as, as well. I would say the patients that have no symptoms of the disease, let's say they have the neurologic phenotype, but they do not have any cardiac symptoms yet, um, I'd I'd say we still need some time to understand what uh, type of therapy we can deliver for those types of patients. Um, And so that's typically the pediatric population, and here we're focused on adults. I imagine that that's, from a clinical point of view, a bit of a challenge in that someone has to be progressed enough to show improvement, but not too far gone that you, you can't show signs of reversing the disease or at least halting it. What are you using as an endpoint? Yeah, no, the, the challenge you highlighted is one that is, uh, I would say, a you know commonplace in uh, certainly in cardiovascular uh, you know gene therapy, but I you know frankly we see it in other um, in other disease areas as well um, that you want patients that have a disease progressed enough where you can show a treatment effect or so an improvement in either biomarkers or, or symptoms, but if, you know, if the disease is too far progressed, you have the risk that you, you know, will not able to rescue the phenotype or, you know, you will not, you know, be able to, let's say, reverse the disease pathology. So you have to find this, you know, kind of Goldilocks, uh, you know, place where, you know, the disease is progressed enough where you can show a benefit, but it's not too far progressed where you, you can't rescue the, the, the phenotype. Now, for us, um, with, the, with endpoints for this particular study, we're looking at um, left ventricular mass index, which is effectively evaluating hypertrophy. Um, what we would hope to see is improvement in, in hypertrophy across the patients that we're treating. We're also looking at uh, troponin, which is a biomarker that um, is, uh, evaluates uh, cardiovascular cell, cardiomyocyte cell death. Um, so it's another vantage point in which to look at, at benefit in, in which these patients typically have your elevated troponin um, versus, for example, uh, normal normal individuals, and um, and the third biomarker we're looking at is 
cardiopulmonary exercise testing, peak VO2, which is a, a measured exercise tolerance. So it's looking at effectively, you know, cardiac output, and it's a proxy for that. So these are the three key, um, you know, sort of early signs of, of, of efficacy that we're looking to evaluate. I think they all look at three different things, um, but we're really, you know, this will give us the earliest signals of whether the therapy is having the effect that, you know, that we're seeking. This is a, a condition that not only affects the brain and the heart, but can affect organs throughout the the body and, and speech and, and hearing and the nervous system. Is there reason to believe that the therapy could benefit other symptoms associated with the condition, or do you expect it just to benefit the heart? It's possible that there is uh, benefit to other other organs. Um, so we're using what's called a ubiquitous promoter in our gene therapy construct, which means we should see expression of uh, the frataxin protein in, in all organs, you know, the liver, the skeletal muscle, you know, and so on. Um, so it may be that there is an ancillary benefit for, you know, these other organs. That's not the target or focus of the therapy, but it may be that we do see some other benefit in, in, other, in other organs as well. well. What's the development path forward? So we're currently in a phase one, two study. I think uh, with positive results here, uh, we would be seeking alignment with the FDA to move to, to a, a phase two or phase two, three study. Um, that phase two, three study, we would hope to be registrational. Um, and we would be looking at, at a BLA following uh, the completion of that, that later stage study. Um, and, you know, with in classically in rare diseases like this, the pyometnid. need, um, the FDA is typically willing to work with companies to move very quickly through the you know, different stages of development to get a therapy to patients as quickly as possible. So we're really you know, focused on that because we know that this is a you know, life-threatening disease and this is a therapeutic option that can you know, truly impact mortality associated with this disease. The company is not only developing gene therapies for rare diseases, but also more common ones. It's developing several candidates for Alzheimer's disease. How does pursuing an indication like Alzheimer's for a gene therapy differ from pursuing a gene therapy for a monogenic disease? Yeah, so this is a uh, very interesting question you asked, and I think uh, a lot of this is, is tied to, you know, where do we see the gene therapy field heading you know, beyond this current focus in kind of monogenic rare diseases? Um, and maybe to explain this, I can just take a step back and explain the genetics that sit behind Alzheimer's disease, because I think it's important to you know, to the question that you asked. And so, you know, um, what we now understand about Alzheimer's disease is that the genetics play a major role in determining the likelihood of developing the disease or, you know, frankly, protection against developing the disease. And the, the APOE gene is the key to that determination. Um, APOE3s, uh, which is one genotype, is 80% of the population this confers normal, normal risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. However, if you're in APOE4, um, especially in APOE4 homozygote, this confers a substantially higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And this is to the order of magnitude of 15 to 20 times higher likelihood than an APOE3 or, or higher than, than normal. Interestingly, if you're in APOE2, which is about 8% of the population, you have a lower risk than normal of developing the disease. And typically APOE2s, a lot of them will, you know, may not develop Alzheimer's disease within, you know, within their lifetime. But the most interesting part, at least to us, is that if you're an APOE2 or heterozygote, so one allele of APOE2, one allele of APOE4, 
the existence of this, um, these two alleles uh, moves someone back to normal. So back to the APOE3 level likelihood of developing the disease. So this is the thinking behind our program where we're using APOE2 as a therapeutic, which we believe can stop or slow many of the pathogenic processes that are believed to be associated with Alzheimer's disease. So what I'm describing is us focused on correcting the genetics of the disease rather than a downstream pathogenic mechanism of the disease. And this is a unique approach, I think, for um, a disease of the profile of Alzheimer's that we're not focused on a single pathogenic mechanism, that we're actually looking to treat the totality of a very complex disease using uh, gene therapy. And I'd say this is not unlike other approaches for other you know, rare diseases, probably the, the one unique element of this is just how many patients there are that are APOE4 homozygotes that we're looking to treat. So, there are, you know, there are more than 900,000 APOE4 homozygotes in the U.S., um, making this one of the largest populations that any gene therapy is looking to, uh, is, is looking to, to address. So, I'd say that's one of the major differences is that, you know, if you're working on a rare disease, you know, like Friedrich's ataxia, there are probably five to 6,000 patients in the U.S., um, and we're working on a disease in Alzheimer's where there could be 900,000 patients. And that has its own unique challenges from scaling and manufacturing. But I think, you know, we're up to that challenge because we know that the unmet need for APOE4 is very high. Where in the course of the disease would you hope to treat people? So our phase one, two study is treating patients who are anywhere from mild cognitive impairments, MCI, through to moderate dementia. So it's a, sort of a pretty broad swath of, of patients. I think um, we will need to review the data from our phase one, two study to determine what's the ideal population we'd be considering in, in the upcoming studies. Um, so I think, you know, our, our data readout will uh, guide us towards that and, you know, more to come as we get as we get the data from the study. Given that you're treating such a potentially large population, how do you expect that to impact pricing of any gene therapy? So that's, that's a great question, and I think it's a, you know, certainly a, a complex one. Um, and I'll take a step back and just you know, provide some, some thoughts on you know, pricing for therapies like, like gene therapy and, and others. So I think you know, my view is that you know, what society has always wanted from the biopharmaceutical industry is cures to diseases, you know, single intervention or single administration, and you never have to think about the disease again. Well, the technology to be able to del- deliver that in a way, is here. It's it's gene therapy, it's gene editing, it's you know cell therapy, you know to some extent. But what that requires then is a you know different approach, a different way of thinking about pricing of medicines. That we actually price medicines uh, considering that they are a cure to the disease versus a therapeutic option where you know it's a pill every day or it's an infusion every month or every week. Um, that you know the industry and payers reorient themselves around you know, potential cures and, and then what that means for, you know, the company's revenues and P&Ls and what that means for the budget impact, impact for payers needs to be, you know, really carefully considered. So I would say, you know, let's use Alzheimer's as an example. There are amyloid antibodies that have been approved and probably more are coming. These amyloid antibodies, patients would likely have to continue to be treated for the ent- entirety of, you know, of their lives from when they're um, diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So theoretically, if you could introduce a gene therapy that offsets all or, or even a portion of that cost, and when you think about the cost, it's not just the direct cost of therapy, it's all of the ancillary costs of the disease. But let's say you could have a treatment effect with a single administration uh, gene therapy, 
and you are either no greater than the aggregate cost of, of an amyloid antibody, I think society would appreciate the cost, um, you know, the, the, the cost uh, benefit of, of that type of therapeutic option. So, you know, I think we won't know with this particular therapy what the price will be until we see the effect size and we know that it's you know, reaching a product profile that's compelling. But I do think from a theoretical standpoint, the ability to replace uh, therapies that patients are being treated with every day, every month, every week with a, with a single administration therapy is something that society should support and something that we should find a way with payers to, um, to, re- to reimburse appropriately. Last year was a, a difficult one for biotechs looking to raise money with the exception of an $8 million offering by another company. Luxie was the only rare disease-related company to successfully complete an IPO in 2023. What led to the decision to go public, and how did the experience compare with past fundraising efforts in which you'd been involved? That's a good, it's a good question, and I, you know, I didn't think of it that way. That you know, we were the only um, you know rare disease company to go out uh, last year. I, I think the first thing I'd start with is that a, an IPO is very simply it's a it's a it's a financing. So you know, we really looked at the company's fundamentals where we were with the progression and de-risking of our pipeline, what were the upcoming you know, clinical data readouts that we had. And I think we believe based on our fundamentals that this was you know, last year, Q4 was the right time for us to access the public markets. And we certainly found support for investors with respect to that. I think what was exciting for investors was that we had you know, preliminary, preliminary data from two of our three uh, key programs that was showing some, you know, early signs of, of some effect. Um, but we also had upcoming, you know, data readouts across several programs that we were, you know, working towards. And I think that picture of some de-risking of key programs, but yet more data to come was one that was compelling for them. And I think that's where, you know, we saw the opportunity to access the public markets. I think the fact that we were a rare disease company, uh, you know, I couldn't comment on, on you know, why there were others that didn't go out last year, except to say that I think we have a you know very interesting pipeline here. We're really working on some diseases and some disease areas that are have a substantial amount of potential, not only in the therapies that we're developing now, but also the read-through of the success in these programs to other, you know, let's say cardiovascular genetic diseases that we can address with our platform. So I think we're very excited about what's coming for Lexio and where things are headed. And how far will existing cash take you? And what's the plan for raising additional capital? Uh, our existing cash uh, brings us to the Q4 of 2025. So it's you know, roughly two years of, of runway. Um, you know, our clinic, we have three clinical data readouts uh, in 2024. So our free gyxotaxia program, our placophilin 2 arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy program, and then the, the APOE4 Alzheimer's program that we discussed. So I, I think, you know, on the other side of, um, these readouts certainly should be substantial. Certainly should be substantially risking. We would expect from the programs, and I think there should be a window you know, to raise more capital. But I would note that on the back of these readouts, we still have you know 12 months of cash. So I think it's you know more than sufficient runway to progress even beyond the, the clinical readouts that we have in the plan today. Our Nolan Townsend, CEO of Lexio Therapeutics. Nolan, thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. 
To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.